Moses, the way of an intercessor. Lesson 7 Father, once again we approach your word with extreme reverence and great joy because of the freedom that we have to have this book in the first place. We thank you, Father, for the blood that's been shed by many over centuries that have allowed us the freedom, men who have held fast to the truth that was given to them. You said you'd watch over them and you'd watch over the word to perform it. And Father, here we are now at the end of technically the end of time, Father, where we know that the soon coming King is, is uh, that time is upon us. Lord, we ask that today you would indeed grant us your spirit of wisdom and revelation. Please open up the eyes of our understanding. As we look at this man, help us to see many, many lessons about intercession, lessons about ourself, lessons about our character. Just help us, Lord. We're asking for help, Lord, because we need help. We need to grow and to move forward and to rise up into the fullness of what you've asked of us. So we ask that you would grant, just grant us, Father, this ability to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, that we would recognize that the Word of God is of no private interpretation. But, Father, we just ask in Jesus' name that we might hear what you want us to hear that each one of us today might be spoken to and taught by the Holy Spirit who lives within our spirit. Amen. Holy One, we ask you to rise up within us. We, we, we yield to you in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask you to teach us and to guide us into truth, to show us that which you would have us to learn and to glean from in these messages. In the name of the Lord, we thank you for it. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want you to get back to Exodus chapter 3 then. And um, I really do have to kind of move quickly today to get through the rest of these notes, as it were. We left off talking about, you know, the name, uh, but I need to put us back in the picture. So if we can start in Exodus chapter 3, and we'll just read through this again, where Moses again sees the bush that burns in verse 4. And he said, I will turn aside to see this. God called to him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. God said, Do not come near. Put your shoes off your feet. For the place in which you stand is holy ground. Also, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. Because of their taskmasters and oppressors, for I know their sorrows and sufferings and trials. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand and the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a large, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty to the place of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, Moses, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will surely be with you. Again, I'm, you're going to be the man who you are is the man that I'm with. I will surely be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, Sinai. And Moses said to God, Behold, when I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your father has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am and what I am, and I will be what I will be. And he said, You shall say this to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God said also to Moses, This shall you say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And by this name I am to be remembered to all generations. And that's more or less where we stop. So I'm just going to read. I'm going to continue to read in Exodus in a moment. But I want to, if you're on the outlines where it says, where we talked about the name of Jesus. I have a quote here from Charles Ellicott from a Bible commentary where he simply says this, God's name is his self-revelation. Again, what we're learning as we look at all this life of Moses is we're learning these lessons along this pathway where God is instilling in him that which is necessary to stand strong in the midst of a real strong opposition that's going to come. But he's, Ellicott said God's name is his self-revelation. J.D. Douglas in the New Bible Dictionary said the name the name signifies the active presence, the active presence of the person and the fullness of the revealed character. Then I have this paragraph. Any commission is only as strong as the name of the one, the organization that sends you. Revelation of God's name is critical in both the Old and the New Testament. This is what carried the testimony. This is what carried the testimony to the nations of the Old Testament as the name of Jesus is to carry the testimony of God to today's nations. While Moses went in the name of I am, we go in the name of Jesus. And we spoke about power of attorney a little bit, didn't we, if you remember that. In the New Testament, first scripture is John 16, 23 and 24. Jesus changes the way his people were to pray. And in that day, he said, you shall ask me nothing. Speaking of the day that you and I live in right now. And in that day, you shall ask me nothing, he said. Jesus said, in that day that you and I live in, you will ask me nothing, but truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father, in my name he will give it you. Hitherto, up to this point, have you asked nothing in my name? Ask and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. So again, he says, the way we're actually called to pray is that we're not to pray to Jesus, but we're to pray to the Father we're to pray to the Father in Jesus' name. Jesus is our mediator, our go-between, the one who is between. He's the covenant lamb. Between God and man is Jesus Christ. The only way to God is, to, is through Jesus. There's one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the one that's in between. You can't get to God without going through him. God can't get to man without coming through him. That's the basic teaching of covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Here's Abram. He could only come to the covenant. God could only come to the covenant. The new covenant. Here's Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb that was slain for us. The only way we get to God is through Jesus. 
And through that name, the only way God gets to us is through Jesus. That's why outside of Jesus, I'm sorry, but people realistically can't have relationship with God. I didn't say God can't do something and touch their lives, but relationship's not there without the person of Jesus Christ. Then in John 14 is really a scripture that deals with authority. Is where Jesus said, And I will do whatever, whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. The whole issue, again, is always that glory is to get back to the Father. I think you've heard me say this before, but remember, there's no place in Scripture where Jesus and the Gospels ever received praise for himself. He always passed praise on to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. And the literal Greek translation of verse 14, it says, Whatever you shall demand as your rights and privileges, I, that I shall do. So God help us to know what our rights and privileges are. In America, we have something called the Bill of Rights. This Bible here is our Bill of Rights. It's when you study the New Testament to discover what's been purchased, what's been paid for, what is your right in the kingdom of God. That's when in that name of Jesus, you're to come in the authority of that name and make declarations. This is my right. See, healing is my right. Do you hear me? It is not the privilege of a few of a few that are just, you know, the, it's not for the privileged few is what I was going to say. Healing is the children's bread. Amen. You and I are all children of God. There are many things that bring conflict and bring problems, but the issue is it belongs to me. I'm an heir of God. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He took my infirmities. He bore them so that I don't have to. He bore the penalty for sin so that I don't have to. All of these things. Now in the New Testament, Jesus tells us that whatever we ask the Father for in prayer, in His name, He will endorse. And again, I put it like this. This puts prayer to a high degree on a purely legal basis if we will see it through humility. Again, when we used to teach this years ago, and we just teach it plain and simple because that's what it says, people tended to get, well, I'll put it this way, they, they tried to work the mechanism without knowing the Father who released the mechanism. Uh, what I mean is they had more faith in the principle of faith than they did in the God who released the principle. And they, their relationship, they became closer to the Scriptures than they became to God. I don't, know if I, if I, I don't know how else to say that, but what I mean is that this is still nevertheless the truth, but we always have to be careful because of how people run off with things. But the fact is, if you and I can study enough, and again, I hate to always repeat myself a thousand times, but remember, we're playing catch up. We are so far from where we're supposed to have been, having uh, really understood what it means to have been, had our whole life from day one surrounded with the Word of God as children and so on, that we're having to play massive catch-up. Our minds have been so corrupted in the way that we think by so many things that have happened in our world and the ways we were taught and what have you, that we're having, we've been, you know, we've been brainwashed from into a wrong degree of thinking. We don't really understand, but there are nevertheless those who have understood, again, those who we celebrate, like the Wigglesworths, like the John G. Lakes, like the Wesleys, whoever... Again, there are people that have lived this and have seen the fruit that the Bible said should be forthcoming. So as I always say, if it ever happened to one, it could happen to us. And it should because God's no respecter of persons. You see, what you and I have done is we have accepted 
abnormality as normality. You understand that? In other words, things that God sees as abnormal for His children, we have lived in so long that they have become normal to us. And because the mass of people, the majority of all the people, live in that same manner, then we have their situations and their experiences that validate ours. And again, this is why I say over and over again, it takes some real determination and some real tenacity and some real desire to be a man among men, to be a, a woman among women. In other words, to step out from the crowd and say, I'm not just going to flow with everything everybody flows. I'm going to study this book for myself, spend some time alone with this man named Jesus, and get my own convictions. Get my own convictions. Get my own convictions. But the truth is we have a lot of the fear of man in us. A lot of the fear of man in us because we want to be accepted. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to, you know, do what we just don't want to experience all the pain that goes along with what it means to all of a sudden discover something in God. That's why, I don't know, like I said, I think some monasteries were started so long ago. And some of these guys had a call and everybody else considered them weird, but they needed to find more of God, and they did. So anyhow, let me continue to read this. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us that whatever we ask the Father for in prayer, in His name, He will endorse. In other words, He said, I'll endorse it, just like I said I gave my uh, accountant in America public or power of attorney so that he could sign checks in my name. This puts prayer to a high degree on a purely legal basis. Again, see, that I don't want that to be offensive to your thinking, that we're making this into some legal thing. But again, the covenant is a document. The covenant is an arrangement. Any way you look at it, the covenant is something that has uh, tangibility to it, that has, as it were, rights and wrongs, ins and outs, doors and gates. It does. And you see, he's just, you, you have to receive that without, begin, without becoming so clinical that you become legalistic. But it's a, it's a fact. Prayer has been put to a high degree on a purely legal basis, if we will see it through humility. He has given us the legal right to use His name, the power of attorney. As we take our privileges and rights in the new covenant and pray in Jesus' name, our prayer passes out of our hands into the hands of Jesus, who ever lives to make intercession for us, is what the Scripture says. He ever lives to make intercession. And again, He's the mediator. He's an advocate, like the Holy Spirit. An advocate is another word for attorney or solicitor. The attorney can over, only go before the judge with evidence. You know what I mean? With evidence to substantiate and to attest to somebody's innocence or to attest to somebody's acquittal. Well, again, faith is the evidence. That's what it says in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Our faith, what we believe, our faith, it says, is the title deed, is the evidence, is the substance of the things that we hope for. It's the evidence of those things not seen. Our faith is the evidence. You bring your faith to God. You bring your faith to God through Jesus Christ. You on earth release your faith. Jesus is at the right hand of God as your mediator. He turns to God and says, here's the evidence, their faith. Hallelujah. That's still the way the thing works. He sits at the right hand of God. The right hand is where, always where the person who brought acquittal sat in the old Judeo system. The left hand was always the accuser. But as we take our privileges and rights in the new covenant and pray in Jesus' name, our prayer passes out of our hands into the hands of Jesus, whoever lives to make intercession for us. 
He then assumes the responsibility of that prayer, and we know that he said, Father, I thank thee that thou hearest me, and I know that thou hearest me always. In other words, we know that the Father always hears Jesus, and when we pray in Jesus' name, it is as though Jesus himself were doing the praying. He takes our place. Excuse me, in our own strength we can do nothing, but through his name, as representing him, all things are possible. Intercessors must know that the sole basis for their authority begins with the revelation that their authority is totally within the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. This is why I said over, we, you, it would do you good to have a whole course on just the name of Jesus. You know, read the books that were written on the name of Jesus. Read Kenyon's book. No matter what people have told you about E.W. Kenyon, trust me, read his books. Read E.W. Kenyon's book on the wonderful name of Jesus. It'll blow your ever-living mind. It's something you have to meditate in. Read his book, you know, In His Presence, the book on prayer. That book so impacted my life. Next to the Bible, it to me was the most important book I ever owned in my life. That book so impacted me some 20 years ago that I, I read the entire book. I read out loud. I read the entire book out loud in the 90-minute cassette tapes. I think it was six cassette tapes, six 90-minute tapes, but I read every chapter out loud just so that I can listen to this again. Uh, I, but I mean, the guy, you know, had come into contact with God. Kenyon's the guy that, you know, when you die, it's nice to die well, and you've heard a story, but it's true. Kenyon, you know, was living with his grandmother in Washington, and uh, Washington State in America, and living with his granddaughter. I said grandmother, living with his granddaughter. And, uh, you know, if you ever see, if you ever have one of his books, you look at this picture, this gray-haired old man, kind of funny-looking teeth, but he's got a smile. The guy had so much joy in his life, it's incredible, but he was just as healthy as a hog, as we'd say in America, healthy as a horse all his life, and then he got up into his 70, late 70s and 80s, and he decided it was time to go home, so he woke up one morning and told his granddaughter, said, granddaughter, fix me my favorite breakfast, so he fixed him biscuits and gravy, ham and eggs, he said, the whole bit, and he said, I'm going home today, and I'm going to go home today at 10 o'clock, so he had his breakfast, sat down on his chair, and the clock struck 10, and he left. You know, and there, are, there are people that had a closeness to God that, that uh, in this guy's books, like I said, a, a lot of people complained about him and said that he was not to read his stuff because he'd been saved out of Christian science stuff. Uh, yeah, out of, yeah, out of Christian science. And so they said all of his thinking was just spinoffs from Christian science. But I, I always used to laugh at people that think like that. I mean, who of you weren't searching before you came to Christ? and didn't have all kinds of things that had partial truth in them. You know what I mean? That nevertheless, you took today in Christ and you got rid of the sticks and kept the hay, if you know what I mean, kept the good part. Anyhow, now let's go ahead. So that's just, Jesus, this is one of the questions again of, of Moses. Who, you know, who shall I say, what is your name? So God answers this thing and says, you're going to go in the name. You're going to represent this name. This is, going to, this is what you're going to be known. This is what I'm going to be known as throughout all generations. And I want my people to remember this. Now back in Exodus, let's continue to read. Verse 15, I'll read from there. God said also to Moses, this shall you say to the Israelites. And remember, this is when Moses is about to go to the Israelites. And there's a little important twig in here in the next few verses that I want you to see. Verse 15, God said also to Moses, This shall you say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, <clears throat> and by this name I am to be remembered to all generations. At point six, verse 16, go. I want you to read, see how it reads in the Amplified. I think I've got it on the next page, or at least in the notes here in a moment, on, on, uh, in, on, in the Amplified on your notes. But verse 16 says, Go, gather the elders of Israel 
together. And then in the Amplified, it has this in parenthesis. The mature teachers and the tribal leaders, the mature teachers and the tribal leaders, and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have declared that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18, And the elders shall believe and obey your voice. And you shall go, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now let us go, we beseech you, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And another important thing that God tells Moses going in, verse 19, And I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless forced to do so. No, not by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in it. And after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor and respect in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall insistently. Now, it's very interesting. The position of women throughout scripture. Seriously. You know, we, little, little passages we let slip by. Proverbs says clearly, you know, in, in the Psalms, I think, no, it's Proverbs, isn't it? that many were the women, the women who published the word. God appeared to women first. And here it's interesting, even when it comes to this issue. But every woman shall insistently solicit of her neighbor and of her that may be residing at her house jewels and articles of silver and gold and garments, which you shall put on your sons and daughters, and you shall strip the Egyptians of belongings due to you. Again, you've probably heard the teaching, but I'll just reference it here. What this is about is, remember, when Israel came out after 430 years of bondage, what God did is pay them all of their back pay. Because they weren't salaried. They weren't paid at all for what they did. So on the way out, God said, well, I'm going to make up for that. He said, you're going to get all your back pay in one day. And he did. Hallelujah. In the midst of this instruction, the Lord shares some other strategy and truth. I've got point A. He assures Moses that it will not be easy. As the God of this world, Pharaoh in this case, will withstand your efforts. Remember verse 19, and I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless forced to do so. In other words, going in, I think I've got this in another scripture a little bit later, but going in, this is something you and I have to understand. Our enemy is just that, our enemy. It's like I often try to do humorously, you know, it's like in a war, you don't walk up and just say, please surrender, please throw down your arms. You nice person, nice enemy, you, da 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 And he goes, oh, well, because you asked so nicely, I quit, you know. Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Um, our enemies, whether they be personal, now, like I said, intercession always has to do with someone else. Whatever our enemies are, the, the, the strongholds of thinking that we may have, they don't go easily, do they? They just don't. The emotional uh, illnesses that many God's people have, and by illnesses, I mean, you know, it's their, the instabilities that we have in our emotions. They've been there for, for 20, 30, 40 years in our lives sometimes. They don't go easy. We don't, we, we have to retrain our emotions. I mean, the habits of the flesh don't go easy. Well, if that's the case with us as individuals and personally, I mean, understand that, that actual demonic issues like that have been in a government for a long time or in a city or what have you, they're not necessarily just going to fall over the first time you wave at them. You have to really get that through your skulls. 
that when you talk about intercession, you're talking about something that has a time frame to it. In other words, this is not like I always, re I always quote Francis Frangipan again out of his uh, book, The Three Battlegrounds. You don't declare war on Satan on Monday and then decide on Tuesday you do not want to fight. You just don't do that. You have to understand this is something where you, again, like Isaiah 62, the principle is of all prayer. We take hold of the Holy One and give Him no rest until the job is done. We're talking about taking hold of something. This is why, you know, when you fight a good warfare, whatever it is, you know, you, you count the cost. Jesus said you count the cost before you build a house or before you go to war. In other words, this isn't something you do to be clever or to join a club. Now, we're not, remember, we're not talking about just standard prayer now. Do you understand? We're not talking about communing with God. We can commune. That's wonderful. Would that we could do that every day of our life. And some people, that's fine. That's all they'll do all of their life. And there's not something wrong with that. But I'm talking about people who choose to have, to make a difference in others' lives and in cities' lives and in situations around about them. Somebody that begins to actually take a hold of this role of an intercessor. Where they begin to see something. They see the injustice and they say, in God's name, Father, I'm going to yield myself to you. I'm going to submit myself to you. Use me in this, if you will. I may not be able to do something in the physical, but I know I can do something in the realm of the spirit because I have your son and his spirit living in me. And so rather than sit down and join all the rest of the crowd and complain and talk about what's going on, I'm going to do something about what's going on. I'm going to begin to apply some pressure, to apply some pressure in the realm of the spirit. And I am going to join your team because believe me, it's a huge team affair. It's not a singular issue. But I'm going to join your team and begin to put pressure against this darkness and push it back. But see, again, this is why there's so many things that we teach on that you have to learn how to walk in the Spirit. You have to walk by faith and not by sight. You have to believe, like I said, beyond what you see in the natural. You have to understand that my prayers are shifting things in the realm of the Spirit. I may never, and so what? You see, you have to please get past this. I mean, yes, God loves us. We're going to get to some things a little bit. But when it comes to big issues, you have to understand, if things have been there for generations, sometimes it may take decades for some things to change. Not all things, but some things. But God layers prayer and layers prayer and layers prayer and layers prayer through the prayers of the saints over, over months and years sometimes before something is broken. You and I have to get some realis realism about us in some of these issues. When you're dealing with some big things, you see idealistic thought would say, we're going to see it snap in two weeks. Now, I'm talking about big deals. I'm not talking about individual prayer needs. I'm talking about situations that may be, like I said, in the heart of a government or in the heart of a nation or in the heart of a city. But you and I, whatever, you see, the secret things belong unto the Lord, whatever the timing is, I, I, that's not my business. What my business is, is obeying God at what he's asked me to do. I, it's not my problem if I see something or if I don't. If I do, hallelujah. If I don't, hallelujah. But I will believe in the name of Jesus Christ that every time I pursue his presence and I begin to speak what he tells me to speak and I pray like he tells me to pray, I have to believe that I'm making a difference that I'm adding layers, I'm adding the weight of my faith to this situation, and that can't be bad, okay? You hear me? So you have to get beyond this, this desire for instant gratification that we have in the world, which is why everybody's got their credit cards so topped up. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're like that in Christianity. We want everything, we want gratification now and all of this. Listen, this stuff has been going on for millenniums. 
And remember when we talk about Satan, that's why we have so many antagonistic people against the messages that we try to bring about prayer and quote-unquote spiritual warfare is because they are aware of this fact. You know, Satan, like I said, Satan has been here long before we were ever on the scene. He's been at work for, you know, since, since, you know, since the fall of Adam. He's been at work. And so he's seen mankind's feeble attempts for thousands of years, okay? And so the issue is he's not really that impressed by our momentary flare of inspiration. But what does bother him is our consistency. Really, I'm going to tell you, what he wants to destroy is our consistency because the, with the limited uh, knowledge that he has, it's not, I mean, he is aware that all of the saints of God as they continue to pour forth their faith and fill these cups, fill these bowls, add these layers, that, you know, they're going to make a difference, that the story is mounting up, that the weight of evidence is mounting up. And soon he knows he does know that at some point, he, you know, he doesn't know at all, but you know, the guy is going to be cast into that bottomless pit. And he will be chained up for those thousand years and let loose for a season, but then he'll be destroyed forever. But the fact is, he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short is what Scripture says. And it's like any madman, when they know their time is short, they begin to flail at anything they can flail at. And so we see a lot of things happen. But you and I, remember Philippians 1.28, must not be intimidated even for a moment in anything. Because remember, such constancy and consistency will be a sure sign and a token of our adversary's defeat and a sure sign and a token of our salvation and that from God. Again, awesome scripture. Okay, so <clears throat> he says here, first of all, as far as this thing about intercession, what we're learning, he said, I know that you're not, that the God of this world, Pharaoh in this case, is going to withstand your efforts. I've got down here 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which again, remember, says that the God of this world, when Paul is speaking to Corinth, he said some of these people, the God of this world, and he's referring to Satan. A lot of people still have to have that really brought home. They need to understand. Well, God is God because, again, mankind, you know, doing what they did in, in Adam, that the least hold of the earth was turned over into the hands of Satan to the point that even in the new covenant after Jesus' resurrection, Paul said the God of this world has blinded the minds of people lest they should see the glorious light of the gospel. So we're dealing with the world. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. Amen? Did you hear me? We're in this, but you must remember, you and I are not of it. Once we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of His dear love. I operate in it, but I'm not of it. I'm not of it. I'm not of it. Now, the, point, the other point is verse 16. I just wanted to see this one thing, and I, I just thought I'd make a mention of this, where God's instruction to Moses, this guy who's, going to be, who's seen through so many teachings and so many you know, colleges of biblical thought as an intercessor, he says, go gather the elders of Israel together, the mature teachers and the tribal leaders, and say to them that the Lord God's appeared to me. Now, the reason I make mention of that is because I put down here on the notes, communicate, if you're going to communicate your cause, if God begins to deal with you about an intercessory project, communicate, I put down here this, communicate your cause with mature people or with none at all. Communicate your cause with mature people or none at all. 
In other words, don't tell anybody. Because I guarantee you, you're going to have enough on your hands as it is without a whole lot of people that don't understand these principles, that don't understand the, the, the things of prayer, that don't understand the things of God, because all they're going to do is help breed confusion and doubt and unbelief in your own spirit. So this is why, again, you have to, you've heard me say it, said it a billion times that prayer in the Bible mostly is a private affair. What it teaches is the privacy of prayer. And so you have to understand your father would seize in secret is what we're after. Just, just the greatest amount of your time in prayer is to be spent when you're alone. I mean, again, when we can get a corporate anointing, it's incredible because of what can be produced in it. But it's rare that you really find a corporate anointing because so many people are at so many different levels of understanding and levels of faith. That's why if we ever could get just a core, just a core of people that thought the same way, believed the same way, understood the same way. Remember the whole thing of Genesis 11, remember the Tower of Babel, when God saw that people were of one language, one thought, one mind, God said nothing which they have imagined they could do would be withheld from them. The power of unity is incredible. So again, therein lies the great strategy of hell. Just divide us any way he can. Divide us in doctrine, divide us in thought, divide us, divide, just divide us. This is why you have to work with particular people. And like I often say when it comes to the prayer of agreement, there's maybe two people when I get serious about something that I pray with because I know they think, we think similar, we think alike. And so when we get into agreement, we're actually getting into agreement. We're not just fancifully using that word in a, in a church service. Well, will you agree with me in prayer? Because most people may not be able to agree with you in prayer because they don't, you know. We, you need to know what the situation is really all about. But anyhow, enough of that. I want you to hear what he said. He said, when you do go, if God has spoken to you, here's what God said again. He said, you go to the mature teachers and the elders of Israel and tell them that I appeared to you. And so I've learned over the years, if you've got something that God's asking you to do, you might be able to share it with some other mature people. But otherwise, if there's not some other people that have a similar understanding, don't share with anybody at all. Because this is you and God's talking to you. I said God's talking to you. But what happens is you and I, because of our flesh needs so much, you know, what we want to do is, and that's part of our immaturity, and it happens to all of us when you're growing up, you want to tell about 30 other people what you're doing for God. God's, had, God's got me doing this right now, and I'm doing this, and I'm praying for, you know, for 37 oil wells for this church up in, up, or whatever, you know what I'm trying to say, and it's a subtle, it's a subtle thing, I'm not saying that you can't share with anybody, but I said, the scripture says, he said, share, if God's spoken to you about something, share with the mature teachers or somebody else will understand or don't share with anybody at all. But I tell you, when it's all said and done, you need to learn the power of aloneness. You really do. You really, 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 really need to say, I've said it again a lot in the last few weeks for some reason, loneliness is never a blessing, but being alone is often the greatest blessing you'll ever understand if you learn how to cultivate aloneness. But again, if you believe what the world says and if your emotions have been destroyed by all kinds of woundings or things that I couldn't list, whatever, I'm just saying then you need to get healed and you need to find the joy of being alone as opposed to the curse of being alone. Because I understand, you know, we all need people, so don't mishear me. But remember, we're talking, about, we're talking in reference to prayer, in particular to intercession right now. I mean maximize those times. Learn if you're frustrated to, to, to vent your frustration in prayer. Don't vent it to people. 
It's when you begin to do that, it's like Rick said again, if we could ever convert our criticism to intercession, we'd win the world. You know, and if we could ever convert our frustrations from, from venting them on other people to, to understanding we could pray that out on the Spirit, we'd see a lot more things begin to happen. Hallelujah. At least that's my thought. Point C, our enemies will not give up easily. Moses has taught this going in, Exodus 3.19, where he says, And I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless forced to do so. No, not by a mighty hand. Now, now we're going to start in Exodus 4. We're going to be in point C. And Moses' next excuse is, but they will not believe me. So Exodus 4, let's read. We're going to read 17 verses here, okay? And Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to and obey my voice, for they will say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord has not appeared to you. In other words, they're going to, this is what they're going to say. This is Moses' fear. This is his excuse. This is his concern. Moses, because God says, this, God tells him all this stuff. In other words, Moses, like you and I, doesn't believe a lot at first, and God's having to deal with him. Moses said, Behold, they will not believe me, or listen to me, or obey my voice, for they will say, The Lord has not appeared to you. I watched God's response again. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Again, typology is an incredible study in the Bible. The hand always speaks to strength, but it speaks to strength in possession. Strength or something that's in your, your control, in your immediate control that's yours. And I want you to hear what God says. It goes along with so many of the teachings. Like I said, see, the patterns of God, this is why you, you have to teach the same thing a million different ways, because God is... God is God, and He's only one kind of God. And so He's the same throughout all Scripture. What God says to Moses, Moses says, but they won't believe me. And God said, what's in your hand? Now, you know, it happened to be a staff, a rod. But see, you and I have to consider when God speaks to us, He's going to say the same thing to you. What do you have in your hand? What's, what's that that you have? You can hear this from so many directions. God says, quit worrying about what you don't have. I will use what you're used to working with. And Moses, for some, we don't know, but he was 40 years out there in Midian. And he'd been shepherding those flocks for 40 years. So he kind of knew what he did with that staff. But that's what he'd been working with. Now this gets important if you'll, if you'll, if you'll begin to catch my drift here. God will always maximize and anoint something that you already know how to handle. But anyhow, let me keep reading. I'm getting way ahead of myself. The Lord, they will say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, verse 2, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, God said, cast it on the ground. And he did so, and it became a serpent the symbol of royal and divine power worn on the crown of the pharaohs. And Moses fled from it, fled from before it. The Lord said to Moses, put forth your hand and take it by the tail. And he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. This, shall, this you shall do, said the Lord, that the elders may believe, that the elders may believe. Now, see, 
Who's he before here? He's not before Pharaoh yet, is he? God's giving him instructions about something he's going to do before his own people. Now, this you shall do, verse 5, said the Lord, and that the elders may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has indeed appeared to you. The Lord also said, or said also to him, put your hand into your bosom. Remember, this was always when they wore robes, where the fold of the robes, just like this vest. This was the bosom. This is where they carried their lunch. This is where they carried their personal belongings in what was called the bosom of the robe. That was what it was. Put your hand into your bosom. He put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as white as snow. God said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand back into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored as the rest of his flesh. Then God said, if they will not believe you or heed the voice or the testimony of the first sign, they may believe the voice or the witness of the second sign. But if they will also not believe these two signs or heed your voice, you shall take some water of the river Nile and pour it upon the dry land. And the water which you take out of the river Nile shall become blood on the dry land. Verse 10 This is his next excuse. And Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent or a man of words, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech, and I have a heavy and an awkward tongue. The Bible says he was a stutterer. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Any of you got an idea? Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the dumb or the deaf or the seen or the blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth. It will teach you what you shall say. And he said, O my Lord, I pray you, send by the hand of some other whom you will send. Then the anger of the Lord blazed against Moses. We're going to go back over these later. He said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well also. He is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be overjoyed. You must speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall do. He shall speak for you to the people, acting as a mouthpiece for you, and you shall be as God. To him, And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall work the signs that prove I sent you. Okay? All right, well, that's the first 17 verses of that. Now, back on the outline, point C, if you can find that there, it says, they will not believe me. Moses then says, no one will believe me. People will not necessarily believe that you are commissioned by the Lord. That relates back to me again, what I just said about if you're going to talk to anybody, talk to the mature people or nobody at all again. People will not necessarily believe that you're commissioned by the Lord, but God will begin to give you authority because that rod always spoke to strength. It spoke to many more things. I've got a couple little notes on it down here from something else I'm going to read in a minute. But he said that God will begin to give you authority. Rather, I wrote down here, people will not necessarily believe that you're commissioned by the Lord, but God will begin to give you authority, a rod which will come to the surface and be noticed by those that are near. Now, again, this is something that happens over a little bit of a period of time because you can't force it, but you have to keep hearing this. 
where does what he already is used to using and handling get empowered? It gets empowered when he's on the mountain with God. You have to keep going back to this. All these questions, remember the, where Moses is at when all this is happening. He's on the mount. He's before God. He's in prayer himself. God has shown himself to him. He's communing with God. God's communing with him. And God's beginning to deal with him about something that he took with him up to the mount that he's already got in his hands. Now, I just remember, it's like, remember, in, in, in Ephesians, in the New Testament, Paul said this categorically, we draw forth strength from our communion with God. It's such a simple statement, but you and I actually need to believe that. We draw forth strength from our communion with God. People that are weak, I'm telling you, if you're consistently, if you know people that are consistently weak, it's because they consistently have little communion with God. What's one of the verses that have been quote, we quoted forever in Christianity? They that wait upon the Lord shall do what? Shall renew their strength. They shall rise up with wings as, with, as of eagles, right? But remember that the word there, that renew, and I've taught it to you on it already before, but remember what the word renew is in the Hebrew. The word is not renew, the word is exchange. To exchange. The word to wait means to serve, to linger. They that wait upon the Lord shall exchange strengths. Hallelujah. I want to tell you, that is a hot promise. That's why, you know, if there were no promises about what else happened, I know this much, there's something, you, forgive me for always being weird about it or comical or whatever. God is not weak. God is not fearful. God is not confused. God is not any of those things. When I, when I force and push myself past the flesh and just learn, like I keep saying, to linger longer before Him in an attitude of prayer. Now, you got to hear me, you see, because to most of us, we're not praying unless we're talking a thousand miles an hour. But remember, prayer is to be a dialogue, not a monologue. And listening is just as important, if not probably, well, listening is more important than speaking really as far as the communing part of God. Because remember, the basic teaching of faith is that you have to have a vertical connection before you're ever horizontally any good. And some people, they're always wanting to affect things here, you know, in, in the horizontal. In other words, out here. You want to affect things around you, but you're so busy trying to connect here that you don't understand that you won't have any power in whatever connections you have here unless this connection, the vertical, is in place. You draw forth strength from your communion with God. So even if I'm just sitting there and I just walk into, I walk into my bedroom sometime, close the door, and I'll just sit on the bed and I'll just say, here I am. And I tell you, you know, like, uh, you know I'm not the ancient of days as I always joke, but, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, and I'm far, what I mean by that is I'm so far from having you know, all the information, like Mr. Superior, like I'm arrived at something. But I'm telling you, I've had to train, it's been 25 years that I've been at this stuff. And I'm telling you, after 25 years, I still, I mean, I know a lot of little tricks of the trade now. What I mean is things that I've disciplined myself to, but I know, see, don't, 
I know what it's like when you sit there and you're, you say, I'm going to be with God, and your mind is going, your mind just, I mean, it's not 30 seconds, and you're thinking about, I need milk. Uh, you know, uh, what else am I, I need to fix that fuse. And they're running, and you know, it's, just, it's just, man, you know, and, and you have to, you have the kingdom of God suffers violence. That whole, you, have to, you have to do whatever it takes. Like I said, whether it's through music or it's through worship, like I said, where you put those songs, those few songs that you just, that touch you. Or like I said, or just like I said, being not afraid even is like I tried to do so many times here. Why I want to get you guys praying because I got to get you past your flesh so you can get even at least a little bit closer to the spirit. Because, you know, everybody starts out, okay, okay, we're going to pray. And you're out, you know, and you're cold as dead mullet. You know what I mean? Father, I praise you. Father, I praise you. You know, and the words are just empty as, as a duck. You know what I mean? But, you're, but you start. See, the key is, like Wigglesworth said, you start in the flesh. Everybody starts in the flesh. But just keep at it. But see, what most of us do is because you don't feel something instantly. You don't feel very spiritual. You don't feel very connected. So, well, I don't feel like anything's being done, so I'll just go and walk by what I feel, and I'll just stop. Listen, you won't get, none of us will get anywhere if we have that attitude. You have to understand that's just part of the journey. You hear me? So you press past that, and you take authority over your mind, over your flesh, over your feelings, and you say, just for that, I'm going to pray another 20 minutes. And you kick the devil in the face. And you tell him, you will not dictate to me. I will not let my flesh dictate to me. I will not let my mind and all its renegade and stupid dumb thoughts that are meaningless right now dictate to me. I'm going to stop and be with you, God. So here I am again. And you cast down that thought and you tell that thought to shut up and you train yourself. Like I said, whatever it takes to take those thoughts captive and you begin to think the thoughts of God. That's why, again, I say over and over again until you get sick of me saying it, read out loud. Because you can't think and speak at the same time. I will take and I'll read for 15 minutes. Sometimes I connect in two minutes. Sometimes I don't connect for 30 minutes. But all I know is this. God's not confused. God's not fearful. God's not dismayed. And if I can get with him, I'm trying to come back to this issue about you draw forth strength from communion with God. If you'll just do whatever it takes, but get there because you can't spend time with him and not have some of him exchanged into you. You begin to lay down your weakness and you begin to pick up his strength. That's what he wants to do for every one of us. He wants us to lay down our confusion and take up the mind of Christ. Lay down our weakness and take up the strength of the spirit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what he does. But so this is what I mean. We have, there's all these like levels, you know, it's like you, you, it's, you ladies who bake your cake or cook something, you know, you get all these elements of the recipe. You need to get them together before you start. Nothing is worse than starting to bake a cake and finding out you got no eggs, you got no baking powder. I know enough about that because of the way my mama cooked, you know what I mean? Rod, go next door and borrow a cup of sugar. You know what I mean? One of those things. Anyhow, listen, people will not necessarily believe that you're commissioned by the Lord, but God will begin to give you authority, a rod which will come to the surface and be noticed by those in the air. 
This is the quote from the Amplified Bible at the bottom of it, John Henry Jowett's a book called My Daily Meditation. He said, there need be no buts in our relationship with God's will. In other words, but God, they won't believe me. There need be no buts in our relationship with God's will. Nothing will take the Lord by surprise. The entire field has been surveyed and the preparations are complete. When the Lord says, I will send thee, every provision has been made for the appointed task. I will not fail thee. He who gives the command will also give the equipment. Hallelujah. Now listen to me. Look up at me. You have to believe that. You can't be concerned about what you don't have right this second. Because if he said go do something, the equipment is already in the realm of the spirit. Everything that you need in the realm of the natural has already been made provision for. Otherwise, you see, he would be unjust to tell you or to commission you to go with this. So even when it comes to prayer, if he's commissioning you to take something on intercession, then the strength to see it through will be there. Do you hear me? Whatever it is, much less you can see that you can go with that in many different directions. God's immediate reply was, what is that in your hands? God wants to show himself to you before you start showing yourself to others. I want you to hear that. That's not on your notes. That's something I've added, but I just want you to hear it. Because he's going to say, the first thing he says is, what's that in your hand? What's God about to do? He's about to show himself to Moses privately before Moses begins to demonstrate anything publicly. Again, private, private, private. God's immediate reply is that, is what is that in your hand, point one. Point A underneath that, as I've already referred to, what do you have already? God says, I'll teach you how to bring freedom to others with something already in your possession. Point B, Moses' responsibility is going to be to wield this rod or this that's already in his possession as God instructs him, not just any way he wants to. Point C, God takes Moses through personal exercises the throwing down of the rod, the hand into his own bosom that we'll read something about in a moment. This registers with us all the desire of God to show himself to us privately before he would use us for himself publicly. I really want you to really think on that statement. This registers with all of us the desire of God to show himself to us privately before he would use us for himself publicly. It's similar to, as I put pointy, to David not using Saul's armor. In other words, he couldn't use something that was untested by himself. David had to go on that which he already was comfortable with himself, what he knew to work with. So I've got two questions down here, and then we'll stop there because of time. But again, you can just take your time. But I just said, how does this translate into our own prayer lives, these truths? This thing about God asking Moses, what do you have in your hand? Well, I want you to think about it and just write some things down. And I put down here just myself a hood because real prayer is private. You'll move in areas that you're used to first, but always being open to God giving you more. Now, what I mean by that is just that, you know, there's, I, I will use what I have as faithfully as I can, but I, I do that with this open mind that God's always going to give me more. And then I put as a second question, 
what would, why would short-term prayer goals be so important to us? Now, what I mean is, is because what I see in all of this thing that God's doing something much smaller with Moses privately before he uses him, like I said, in big things publicly. And like you've heard me say before, when I led that prayer group in the States so long, I had blackboards and whiteboards, these guys that I worked with, you know, when I had tons of people at that church. The point was, again, I'd always have them establish short-term prayer goals. In other words, something that could be easily, far more easily answered in prayer than trusting God for the nation to be converted within 30 days. You know what I'm trying to say? And like I've said over and over again, there's nothing that builds faith more than personal answers to prayer. But you need to discover how God answers prayer privately. In other words, by not sharing with anybody some of the simple needs that you may have and going only to God and being particularly, uh, well, what's the word? Precise. Because it's when you watch God precisely answer little small things that your faith begins to grow. Like I said over and over again, like I've had, guys, you know, I taught guys to pray that they needed socks. I mean, a teen challenge, and I'd have them begin to, you know, have, you know, you can't, it's hard to believe God for a car if you haven't believed God for a pair of socks. Faith is a muscle. So I'd say, you need this, if this, but, you know, you go away and you ask yourself, what's something small that I really do have need of? And I'm going to pray. I'm not going to use my natural abilities to go and do it. Even if I could purchase it myself or whatever myself, I'm going to pray about something small. And I'm not going to drop hints to anybody. Did you hear me? I'm not going to drop hints to anybody. This is going to be between you and me, Father, because I know that you answer prayer and and so I'm just going to give you this freedom right now. There's something small that may be silly, but I, I you know, uh, you've got to understand, God has no greater joy than to hear that his children walk in truth, and God longs to show himself alive to his kids. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons we learn in Moses' life in Jesus' name. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.